unfiltered, uncensored, and unapologetic. This is the Retail War Zone Podcast. Good evening, everyone. Hope everybody's doing well. Give everybody just a second to jump in here. This evening, I have Marissa Baker uh, with us. Uh, she is an assistant professor at the University of Washington. And I came across her because of the algorithms on Twitter and whatnot. And, and a tweet of hers had shown up about this study that they had done with grocery workers and the effectiveness of the different protocols during COVID-19. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to turn it over to her, let her introduce herself and kind of tell us a little bit of what she does. And then we'll get into the meat and potatoes, have your questions ready, and we'll go from there. Marissa, the floor is yours. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really great to connect over Twitter. Um, Yes, so as mentioned, I'm a faculty member at the University of Washington, and my expertise and my interest is in occupational health. So I study how work impacts our health, whether that's our physical health, like getting injured at work or breathing in something that makes you sick, or your mental health and how, you know, dealing with um, annoying customers or annoying bosses or having, you know, not ha- making enough money, how that can cause stress and depression. Um, and that affects, you know, the, the health of our workforce. Um, I became interested in occupational health, you know, after I finished my undergrad where I studied biology, I was interested kind of broadly in public health and how to prevent disease instead of treat disease. Um, And, you know, when I landed at University of Washington, I became interested in occupational health largely because of my upbringing. Um, I grew up in a rural part of Washington state, um, probably the reddest county on the West Coast. Um, And, you know, my mom is one of 14 kids and they were all farmers. And it's just I grew up in a very working class community and kind of saw how inequitable work can be. Um, you know, not only in terms of pay and benefits, but also in terms of things that you encounter in work that could influence your health. Um, you know, and I have a great respect for um, the trades and the working class. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, what we have recently started calling essential workers. Excellent. So kind of highlight some of the things that apart from this, you know, from your bio on on your um page for the university. Mm-hmm. I know you did the the mental health for the Mariners um, and mm-hmm. you are part of a community that basically is supporting females in construction, correct? Yeah. So, yeah. So I've done work on a variety of other projects in addition to grocery stores. Um, yeah. So, and particularly during COVID. So I've been doing work with U.S. Mariners. So folks who transport goods and transport people um, across, you know, across the world, but primarily in the United States, um, looking at their mental health and how the um, pandemic has impacted that. Um, these are folks that often were, you know, staying on their vessel for four months or six months without ever being able to leave the vessel because of um changes in protocol due to COVID. So you can imagine that's very stressful, especially when only about half of the vessels in the United States fleet have internet, have phone. So it can be very isolating experience. Um, 
So did some of that work. I've also been working with EMTs a lot recently um, and how they, you know, they've been impacted um, and Uber drivers who were, you know, very um, impacted very early. Nobody wanted to get into a vehicle um, with an Uber drivers. Um, you know, but then outside of COVID, um, as you mentioned, I've also been working with females in construction. Our construction industry um, in the United States is only about 4% female. Um, and um, they face a lot of very unique um, exposures being a female on a construction site, ranging from, you know, PPE that doesn't fit to harassment, discrimination, um, you know, and things like just can't find a childcare that opens at four o'clock in the morning when they have to go to work. Um, so, you know, trying to do things um, to make the experience better for women in those trades. And then also in the past, I've done a lot of work with welders and folks who work in foundries and looking at some of the exposures in steel. Like, so when they melt their steel, what are they exposed to um, and how does that affect their neurologic function? Those are kind of some of some of the highlights, I guess. That's some pretty impressive stuff. I'm not going to lie. So kudos to you. So let's talk about this study with the grocery stores. Um, you you had a control group, correct? So so kind of. Um, you know. So really, what I mean, really, what the goal of the study was was to try to understand how grocery stores were reacting to COVID nineteen. Um, very early on. So, you know, very early on, there wasn't really any guidance and the guidance that we were receiving was changing rapidly. If you'll remember, don't wear masks. Yes, wear masks. Um, clean every surface. Okay, stop clean, cleaning every surface. Um, and so we were just trying and there wasn't any like OSHA guidelines. There weren't any um, you know, state-specific guidelines. And so what we were really trying to do is look and see, well, what are stores doing? Um, and are stores in different parts of the Northwest doing different things? Um, are there differences between chains and um, small, like, mom-and-pop stores? And are there differences based on the income level of the shoppers that they serve? And how does it change over time? So it wasn't so much a control group, um, but we did kind of have a baseline measure of what was going on in the store. And then we were able to see how it changed over time. So initially in, in your study, how do you think, and like you said, there weren't really any guidelines and it really was kind of fly by the seat of your pants. How do you mm -hmm. think that industry coped and on average? Do you think they did a pretty good job or do you think that, they were strapped by costs and, you know, it being kind of polarizing or whatnot? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, and, uh, you know, what I saw that I think was, was interesting is that most of the grocery stores were responding to make the customer feel safe. And less concern was on making sure that the workers who are working there are feeling safe. Um, and as someone who studies occupational health, my focus is on the worker, um, and so, you know, there were lots, what we kind of saw was they're, they're putting in things to keep the customers feeling safe by, you know, trying to get the customers to follow, you know, only go down an aisle one certain way or, um, you know, having 
the checkout line clean between every customer. Um, things that probably don't make that much of a difference for an airborne disease, right? Um, you know, and there wasn't, but it didn't seem to be that there was an emphasis on, well, what can we do to protect the workers? <laughs> um, so, you know, they, I, you know, I feel like where we were in the Pacific Northwest and our study was in Portland and Seattle, um, you know, pretty uniformly all stores required masks um, and that aligned with our government orders out here um, for requiring masks. Um, but, you know, fewer stores had things like, um, you know, people actually enforcing that people were wearing masks or having masks to hand out to shoppers, um, you know, and so that can get into that, that can create a risk for the workers. If they are the ones having to tell people, you need to put on your mask, or if they then become bouncers enforcing the mask rule. Um, you know, we've seen that has led to violent um, incidents. And, you know, so that's not, that's not what we want to see. Um, you know, and there was a lot of focus on cleaning and closing down things like you know, the soup or the grab and go donuts or, um, you know, salad bars completely got closed down and things like that. So, um, and it was really about protecting the shopper and not the worker who is really getting the brunt of it day in and day out. Well, I think the way it progressed now, I would say probably you guys, you know, where you were located, you know, fared better, but, you know, I think it was pretty well understood amongst employees that as this thing progressed, they moved further and further away from the safety protocols to keep the customers coming back in, which, mm, okay. which was one of the most frightening things because then it became like, you know, here, you know, where we live, it became a constant, you know, well, the customers, we're not going to enforce the mask thing. They, they, they don't have to wear it or, you know, they came in deliberately, you know, disobeying and a lot of these corporations were telling their managers you can't say anything you know it's all about you know getting that money and there mm -hmm. again too you know shows kind of a lack of empathy for their worker base because they're basically selling out their crews you know for a dollar you know and um right. what as far as the different types of prevention measures that you guys studied what did mm -hmm. you find actually worked the best? Yeah. So, I mean, the things that are, that's probably at this point and always was the most important is, is ventilation. Um, you know, and that is something that's really hard to assess. And also it's very expensive to upgrade and make changes to, um, and so I can understand that it's not something that maybe has widespread attention paid to it. Um, but, you know, increasing the airflow in a space is great for so many things, not only COVID, but other diseases as well. Um, and, you know, also just for we've seen links between poor air quality and people feeling lethargic and tired and unmotivated. And so good air quality is really essential for worker health in so many ways. Um, you know, and at, at grocery stores in particular, you do have doors opening and closing frequently. Um, it's not like, it's typically not stuffy, um, but it's just probably something that 
a lot of attention wasn't paid to. Um, you know, a lot of the, the, the things that were happening, particularly out here, I would put into the category of hygiene theater, um, which is kind of doing things to make people feel safe, whether or not they actually are necessary. You know, so things like cleaning the belt, the checkout belt between every shopper or telling out here, there was a lot of telling shoppers they could not bring in reusable bags. Um, and in our state, in Washington state, you, if you, we do not have plastic bags. And if you opt into paper bags, you have to pay for them. Um, and so if you, so for some people not being able to bring in their bags, it really ticked them off. And, you know, that's not, there's no, we have no reason to think that customers bringing in their bags was driving disease. Um, you know, so hygiene theater like that, like having someone clean every single cart, um, you know, when again, that is not how the, the disease is going to spread. It's airborne, um, it comes out of our mouth, um, it lingers in the air. So doing things like upgrading your ventilation is going to be the most effective. Um, but I should mention that there are other things that I think are as important for workers um, in grocery stores. And those are what we call administrative controls. Um, and so these are um, things that are done to change how, you know, to change the work environment, but maybe not directly, like not installing a ventilation or having people wear masks. It's more like changing the policies and practices of the work environment. So things like hazard pay, things like increased sick leave, um, things like more pay in general, things like better benefits, things like being able to get a COVID vaccine before other workers, um, you know, you know, things like that, um, work-life balance around, you know, a lot of people might have had kids home because school's closed, um, you know, so I think things like that are ultimately as important Um for keeping people safe at work and for, you know, keeping them excited about working and not not feeling like it's such a drag. Well, to your point on that, you know, you got to think that there were a lot of people that were pulling extra shifts and whatnot. And, and we all know, I mean, as you wear down, your immune system wears down with you. So mm -hmm. if you're putting these employees through all these excruciating shifts and hours and lack of breaks and whatnot, that's just as detrimental as anything else. And I think the one point that you made that, you know, in hindsight now, you know, two years later, yes, it was airborne. And, mm -hmm. and it was like, you're right, hygiene theater. I mean, it was clean, every doorknob clean, you know, they, these stores had like a checklist they had to do every hour that, now, in hindsight, it was useless. But at the time, we thought it was really important, right? And, you know, so, yeah. I mean, that, that to me is absolutely crazy. Now, were you guys able to pin down, like, in your study, um, let's say, the, the, the plexiglass shields in front of the registers or, you know, and the different, like, what other than ventilation did you see the most success in prevention and then what would you, other, yeah. and then other than the hygiene theater, what would you say was one of the most useless things? Yeah, so I'll start with the most useless, and it actually probably is those plexiglass screens. Um, and I'll explain why for a couple of reasons. So 
the size of the virus in when you breathe it out, it, it's equivalent to like the size of particles in cigarette smoke. So think about someone standing behind one of those plexiglass screens, smoking a cigarette and blowing out the cigarette smoke. It's going to go around the screen. It's going to go over it. It's going to go under it. It's not, that screen does not contain it. Um, you know, when you have particles that are that small, they move at the whim of the air movement, right? Um, they don't fall to the ground. They don't stick to the plexiglass screens. They're going to find a way around. Um, and so that's kind of the first reason. The second reason that they are not great is because someone who is behind one um, can start like the air. It, it creates what we call an eddy. So basically it traps the air between the person and the plexiglass screen. And it can actually increase their exposure to whatever is in the air. So those are things that it's, those are tricky because early it seemed like that was helpful when we thought the virus was larger and it fell to the ground. Um, and now it's almost like people expect them to be there. And so if you take them out, people will get mad. Um, but really they're not necessary and they're um, like, they could be detri detrimental to health. Um, in terms of, you know, controls that I think are actually important um, and actually work, um, you know, masking does work with some caveats, right? Like you need to have a high quality mask. Um, it needs to be consistently worn. Um, and, you know, I, and there needs to be, you know, kind of a community of masking um, where everybody is wearing a mask and everyone's wearing a high quality mask. Um, but when we think about masking, like even if it's a cloth mask or a surgical mask, which isn't as protective, you know, even if it only provides 25% reduction in, um, you know, cases, that still is a huge impact when it comes to overfilling the hospitals and things. So kind of having to think about masking as a, it's a public health measure where you might still get sick even if you wear a mask, but you've probably prevented some other people from getting sick. And so overall, our numbers are looking better. Um, yeah, so definitely masking and ventilation are kind of the two. Um, and then lastly would be limiting the number of people who are allowed in a space. Um, just because the more people you have, the more people are breathing out, the more potential virus there is in the air. And so anything you can do to limit the number of people um, is important. Well, I can tell, but not for the bottom line, right? Right, right. Because I can tell you from some of the places I went into, they they did not care about the number of people, and and you know, going back to the masks, you know, I like the point that you know, when you look at a percentage, and my wife and I were actually discussing this earlier, and I'm like, none of us go in to buy an umbrella expecting it to keep us 100% dry, nor are they marketed as such. Okay, so basically, they're there to keep you less wet. It's yeah. and nobody's fussing about that, but but they wanted to fuss about a mask, and it's it's the same principle, you know, and you know, as a parent, you know, when this thing started, we looked at it like, you know, regardless of what anybody says, and and if there is or is not, you know, accurate data, as a parent, if you told me it was like point zero 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 one percent protection, as a parent, that's better than zero. 
<laughs> so, you know, you, you kind of roll with it. But, you know, from the standpoint of the protections put in stores, you know, here in the southeast, especially the grocery stores, when this thing hit, there was no like door monitor here you're saying okay we can only have x amount of people in the building um you know especially when it started getting really really bad there at the end of march first of april it was like a zombie apocalypse movie when you go into a grocery store here it was just like <laughs> people just going <laughs> everywhere and you know we all bought into the to the sanitizer so let me ask you about that the hand sanitizer how effective if any was that yeah um it, for COVID, not not very, because again, how the, the virus spreads. I mean, if you were to get virus on your hands, um, you probably would not have enough to be able to infect yourself or someone else um, just by touching with your hands. Um, but in general, you know, hand sanitizer, great for cold, great for flu, great for other diseases that I don't want to minimize. So, you know, we could all probably wash our hands a bit more in general. Um, and that's great for a variety of diseases, just maybe not COVID. <laughs> so, yeah, because that became a gold mine. It's like, if you, if, if you were able to find mm -hmm. a bottle of hand sanitizer, it's like, oh, you could sell that on the market for like quadruple <laughs> the price. Yeah. But, yeah. um, so when you were doing these studies, were you or members of your team actually going into these stores and did you get any kind of pushback for asking questions or whatnot, or was it all pretty copacetic? Yeah. So we were going into the stores and we had a, um, about nine stores in Seattle and I think seven in Portland. So I was in Seattle and I had a grad student who was down in Portland and so we were visiting every store every month for almost a year, um, which we call a longitudinal study because, you know, we were following them over time. Um, we did not get any pushback in the whole time we were out. Um, we had talked with our, like, research ethics team at the university about what we should do. And, you know, we were told that if someone asks you, you need to be honest and say, we're researchers at the University of Washington, we're collecting this data. But we were not collecting data on any individual people. Um, it was more like, does the store require masks? Not how many workers in the store are wearing masks, um, you know? And so it wasn't, we weren't collecting individual data. It was all store level data. But none of us ever got approached. I mean, I walked around with an iPad. <laughs> um, I wasn't trying to hide it. I wasn't trying to be conspicuous. Um, you know, I think it, you know, I, I guess I just didn't stand out. <laughs> um, but it's interesting you brought up the limits on numbers because we actually did see that a lot in the Seattle and Portland area. Even among major chains like Walmart and Costco, they were very much limiting numbers. And we would have to queue, you know, stand in line sometimes like over a half hour just to get in the store. Um, and so that's really interesting that that is something that was different here Um as compared to other parts of the country. Now, given the fact that you're there in Seattle, am I correct? Weren't, wasn't Seattle like one of the first big, really outbreaks? Yeah, we were. We were the first case um, that was found in the United States um, at a long-term care. I think it was at a long-term care facility just outside Seattle. So we kind of, um, 
you know, we had some of the first cases very early in like even late February. Um, but then very quickly, New York kind of overtook us as um, numbers and spread. I mean, it, it was quite frightening yeah. to watch this stuff in real time. And, you know, yeah. it, it was yeah. it, it really was. Now, um, going through some questions. Um, so with the study and the mental health of the employees, did you find mm -hmm. any care from the companies about the added strain physical and mental health placed on their employees during this? Yeah, great question. So just to clarify, I never did a mental health assessment of, of retail workers, which I would love to do. Um, but for some of the other work type of work groups that I talked to, um, I can I can share some of that. And um, so for the Mariners, it very few reported um, receiving any training or communication related to mental health during the pandemic. Um, same for the EMTs, um, you know, maybe you have like an EAP program, an employee assistance program that you can call if you feel like you really need mental health help. Um, but in general, I just think it's very overlooked. Um, and often there's this attitude of, you know, you should be lucky to even have a job, like you're getting money, you should be grateful, um, you know, which it's so not, you know, I, I don't have a lot of examples of workplaces in general who are supportive of worker mental health. You, well, I've got a ton of volunteers here in the chat that are saying that they can help you mm -hmm. with the mental health research and retail. Speaking of which, awesome. if somebody wanted, you know, to push an academic study of like, say, just mental health and like retail, how, mm -hmm. how do you go about doing that? Yeah, great question. So um, typically you need money. <laughs> um, so little known fact about um, professors who work at universities is that we don't get our salary paid by the university. Um, I get half my salary paid by the university. I'm responsible for paying the other half of my salary through grants and through projects. At some universities, people have to pay their whole salary. Um, you know, so if I, you know, get a grant and I then say I'm going to pay 10% of my salary or 20% of my salary to work on this grant. Um, so, um, yeah, so getting a grant to support my time, to any supplies, support staff who are working on the projects, um, students who might be working on the project. Um, there, and there's lots of different mechanisms to get that money. Um, there's federal funds. So NIOSH is the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health. They award grants um, and the National Institutes of Health award grants, um, CDC awards grants. They just take a really long time. <laughs> um, and the, you know, the rate of getting them is extremely low. They're, they can be very hard to get and it can take a year or two from the time you write the grant to actually getting money. Um, so there's other like state grants um, at the university. I often get money from, we have a labor center, so get money from them. And I also frequently partner with unions, um, you know, as a way to kind of, we're mutually interested in a, in a project. Um, the project that, you know, we've been talking about with the grocery stores was actually unfunded work. Um, I had a graduate student who was really enthusiastic and he took on, uh, you know, a lot of the labor. Um, and so um, that's, 
you know, also sometimes an option if there's, there can off, you know, in COVID, it was very much like, I want to do something quick. I don't want to wait to get money. Like we need to start doing this now. Um, and so it was better to just kind of jump in and do, do it unpaid as opposed to waiting a year and a half when it's no longer relevant. Well, I applaud you for that. And, and you just blew my mind. I had no idea that, you know, the teaching profession <laughs> in college, you know, was like that. That's, yeah. that's wild that, you know, basically you've got to pony up, you know, the second half of your salary. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not gonna get on that soapbox, but that's why I think all educators should be paid more. So I just want to throw that out there, well. <laughs> <laughs> you know, especially doing work like that. I mean, you know, that's an important study, you know, and, mm-hmm. and it was done for free and that's amazing. I mean, that, that is, it says a lot about, like you said, your partner's um, exuberance for wanting to get it done and, and excitement for, you know, the study. Um, what, another question was, is there um, future research that we can all look forward to from you? Yeah. So, well, and I, I also want to just say my, the grad student who is helping me with this, Alan, his mom is actually a grocery store worker. And that's why I think he was so like immediately, he was like, this is what I want to do for my thesis project. Like I really want to work with this population. Um, so that's awesome. Um, so at this point, I don't have much in the hopper specific to, um, grocery retail workers. As I've mentioned, I would love to do more with that group of workers. Um, I have connections to um, a union out here. Um, And so I think, you know, looking at mental health, looking at needs um, around stress, also looking at things like bullying and violence at work, harassment at work, I think is really of interest and a need and something that I hope to pursue um, in the near future. Um, in terms of, you know, kind of the work that I'm actively working on, I'm still very much working with the U.S. Mariners um, and, you know, trying to think about how to. Um, so we saw very high rates of depression, anxiety, um, stress, suicidal ideation and PTSD in U.S. Mariners. Um, and so it was you know very apparent to everyone involved that like, hey, we have to intervene. Um, so kind of trying to work on what some of those interventions might look like. And then I'm still working with the women construction workers who have also had very impacted work um, the last couple of years, as as many have, um, you know, and we've developed a mentoring program to that would basically be between like a journey level woman and an apprentice woman to try to make sure that, you know, they make it from the apprentice stage into the journey level and they actually make it into a career um, in construction. And so, and I think that mentorship is, you know, something that could be powerful in other occupations as well. Absolutely. Now um, in Washington state, is that a pretty big union state? So I, I learned today that Washington is the third, um, the third largest or the the third union state. So, uh, but we have Boeing. Boeing is unionized, so that's really big out here. 
Um, but it, yeah, it's the third in terms of number of workers in a union in the country. Wow. Um, like I said, I've got uh, the chats just blowing up, you know, we'll volunteer, we'll volunteer, we'll volunteer. So. Great. Yeah. We'll have to give out my email address. I, I want to hear from everybody. Uh, be careful what you ask for. <laughs> because <laughs> we, we can give you a lot um if that's something you're interested in doing i can uh yes i will give them your email address and, and have them message you um let's see what else do we have question wise uh there was a question while you were doing these studies did you ever witness them working on the ventilation system while you were there oh gosh um no um but I, I, it probably wouldn't be in a place where I would even be able to see it. Um, it would probably be in the back room or, um, you know, somewhere. So I just cannot comment on the effectiveness of ventilation, except to say that most places could probably be doing better Correct. <laughs> across the board. Um, another question from um, across the pond from Irish Connection. He asked, do you know to what degree the infection rate was higher in retail, if any? So I guess from studies, I mean, I guess you could kind of piggyback off of, you know, the grocery store thing. Mm -hmm. When you were going through the pandemic and you were going through these studies and whatnot, were you getting any kind of data showing what industries had like the highest? Yeah, so we have some data on that and you can imagine it's um, incomplete and probably an undercount um, because some people might not, you know, when you go, so at least here in Washington, and if you go to the doctor, the hospital, you are asked to share your industry and your occupation. Some people don't. Um, sometimes it doesn't get um, recorded accurately or at all, especially during hospital surges. Um, and we also have, you know, information on workers' compensation claims. Again, here in Washington, um, our workers' compensation is run by the state. Um, and so, you know, it's a, a kind of state data on who's putting in claims and who's getting them accepted, which, of course, you you know, you recognize that some people aren't even going to put in the claim. Um but so what we what we've seen kind of from and, you know, just surveys of people like, did you have COVID? What's your job um, from? So kind of cobbling all those data sources together. It's not a surprise. I mean, healthcare tends to be the, yeah. the hardest hit, um, but retail is in the top three kind of consistently, um, you know, like food processing. So um like uh, slaughterhouses is high. Um, those who work in social services and protective services, firefighters, police officers, um, community health care providers, things like that are high. Um, but retail is right up there. I, You know, you were talking about talking with the EMTs. You know, the mm -hmm. EMTs and the Uber drivers, man, you want to talk about like, you know, sitting ducks for this mess. Right. And that is just um, really, really, when you think about the delivery drivers, especially because, you know, restaurants, they jumped on this curbside, you know, Uber and DoorDash and people like that saw this, mm -hmm. you know, gold mine. Oh, we're going to get some drivers and we're going to send them out there. It's like sending lambs to slaughter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, and especially one, one of the things that really stuck 
with me from the Uber drivers is they said, you know, they would say so many people would call us to drive them to the COVID testing site. Like, oh, gosh, imagine that. And, you know, you get in the car and they're like, oh, drive me to the testing. It's like, oh, gosh. Um, Yeah. So in that population, there were very high rates of um, presumed COVID. It was like this was done so early that testing was like hardly widespread. Um, Yeah. Double digits easily. So did you have any kind of data in the grocery stores that you were kind of looking at as far as like any employees that had passed away? from COVID? Um, so in, not specifically in the grocery stores, but we did have a few fatalities of grocery store workers in our state, in Seattle, um, that were attributable to COVID-19. And it's interesting you bring this up because tomorrow is actually Workers Memorial Day, um, which is a day where we, you know, honor those who died at work Um, but kind of more largely think about how work (laughs) affects people's health and whether it, you know, people get injured at work or die at work or get sick at work or, and so, you know, I think it's just really timely to think about that and kind of acknowledge the fact that for a large (laughs) number of the population, work is not safe. um, And there are real consequences to, to work there, or there can be, and those that's, a huge sacrifice. You know, it kind of mirrors something I was reading earlier. It's talking about um, societies and how with the pandemic, it's very similar to like the Victorian era when industrialization started really kicking off that everything was so dangerous for workers. Mm -hmm. And here we are as advanced as we are as a society only to get kind of knocked back into that because it wasn't safe to go to work. Mm-hmm. And that's a, a, a very intriguing parallel, you know, so it's um, a little, a little sketchy. And the thing that, that, you know, when, when you talk about like the fatalities, I think the, the one thing that really irked me, you know, being retail and working grocery and all this other stuff is there was such a push during all this, you know, you've got a team out there, you're doing this study, you know, for the greater good, but at the same time, you've got these companies, you know, having backdoor talks to, you know, the chamber of commerce and all these other important people trying to shirk liability of, mm-hmm. of any of that. Right. And we saw how some companies made so much money during the pandemic, right? Like Amazon made so much money um, and, you know, can barely provide hazard pay or, you know, sick leave for their warehouse workers. Um, So, yeah, it's a real and I think like what we're starting to see now, I think, is that the power balance is starting to shift a little bit because it very much was. Um, you know, the employee had all the power. Um, And now we're starting to see employers taking more power, both in terms of unionization, like Starbucks Mm -hmm. and Amazon, but also people who are quitting, (laughs) saying like, screw this, I've had enough. Um, You know, and I recognize that not everybody is in a position to take advantage of those things. But I do feel like a wave is, a wave is coming that might, 
shift some of that power back to workers just because employers realize that workers aren't messing around anymore, that they expect to be have good working conditions. Yes, and and, and you're 100% correct there. I, I think the, the one thing that industry fears the most was exposed by the pandemic is people started to become cognizant of their worth. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you had a lot of these industries, especially, you know, anything customer service based, basically, you know, dealing with people, you saw such a big hit, you know, on, you know, the quote unquote great resignation. Well, these companies weren't taking Mm -hmm. care of of their employees, but, you know, whether it be pay, mental health, you know, just overall protections during the pandemic, those kind of things. Mm -hmm. And these people said, okay, we're not getting paid enough for this. You're not going to give us any more money. You're not helping our benefits. And hazard pay is a big one that you brought up. You know, Um, there was some like very superficial offerings there at the beginning that was basically all PR for the companies. Everybody got mm-hmm. wise to it, said, that's it, peace out, you know, and yeah, you're, you're, you're correct. There, there is a movement and the sad part is, you know, up until about three months ago, that's all we were hearing about in the news was a great resignation, great resignation. And then all of a sudden mm-hmm. it just dropped off. We don't hear about it anymore. It's still happening. But, you know, when you look at big money and corporations and stuff like that, they're going to try their best to squash this stuff. And and I'm still mm-hmm. waiting to see some sort of set of lawsuits on different companies, you know, that are trying to shirk their liabilities of taking care of these employees. And, you know, family members are coming forward saying that, you know, their their mom or dad passed away due to COVID because there were no safety protocols in these different businesses. Yeah. And, you know, you're, you're dead on. I mean, it's it's happening and, and it should and I, you know, I really do applaud the fact, you know, you brought up, you know, the hazard pay, the uh, extended benefits. One thing that really, you know, I thought and was hopeful would change would be sick policies in places. Yeah. And it hasn't. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because we've, so we some of the work we've been doing with EMTs has been digging into why people come to work sick. Um So that is actually, there's actually an academic term for it. We call it presenteeism, which means you're coming to work when you shouldn't be. And whether that's because you're sick or because um, you're distracted or because you're injured or, you know, you're not in a good headspace, it's not a good thing. Um, You know, but what I think is important to recognize is that if you have workers who are coming to work sick, then you as an employer have done something wrong. This is not the employee's fault. This is your fault. You're not providing them enough sick time. You're not providing them a way to easily find someone to cover their schedule. You're making them feel like if they don't come, they're going to get fired or they're going to get harassed. Um, You know, and so I um, think that that is kind of an interesting Another interesting thing of all this is that it used to be like going to work sick, people wore it as a badge, like, oh, I'm working through it. I'm, you know, and now it's, we realize we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be doing that. And our employers have been tricking us into thinking that we're doing a good thing by doing this. Um, You know, when in reality, it's like, I, I do consulting with a lot of different businesses and they often ask me like, what's the one thing I need to be looking out for? Um, you know, like that would tell me I have a problem in my workplace. I'm like, if people are coming to work sick, you have created a problem, <laughs> you know, right there. Yes. That's like, and, and you know, you're right about wearing a badge and you know, I'm, if I'll be 
52 this year. And, you know, I came up through management and whatnot, and it was drilled in our head. It don't matter if you're sick, you got to be there, you know, and, mm-hmm. and that became a culture. And there are some people out there that, like you said, they, they, they I've never missed a day of work. Well, good for you. You've probably made people mm-hmm. sick. And then you add into it the divisiveness of the whole pandemic. Not only do you have people coming in sick, you have people coming in sick out of spite because they refuse to believe that they have what they may have. And it was just mm-hmm. a recipe for disaster. Yeah. Yeah. But if people felt like, oh, I have enough sick time and I'm not going to, my boss isn't going to like harass me and I'm going to get paid, you know, people, it might be easier to feel like, oh yeah, I can stay home because I have a cough, not like, oh, I have to save my precious sick time in case I get like, you know, really injured or really sick or something. Yeah. It's, it's a, I feel like it's a more complex issue than maybe we had thought about before the pandemic. You are correct. And, and you're right. I mean, that is a problem. You know, you, you as a corporation or a manager shouldn't want people in your building sick. And that speaks a lot to the leadership right. as well, you know, even at a store level, because these store managers had the power to send people home. And in a lot of instances, they didn't. And they didn't because, well, yeah, they showed up, they're sick, but we really need that body here. So, you know, it's been encouraged for so long, but I'm glad to see that, you know, a lot of people have called on to that. And now they'll just, you know, if they've got to call in sick, they're going to call in sick. And that's the way to be. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. foolish, you know, for me for 30 years, there were plenty of times I went to work that I had no business being there. Mm -hmm. But you felt like you were going to lose your job or or, like you said, get harassed or your boss is going to be all over you and all this other stuff. But, you know, I, I think that, as far as sick time goes, there's got to be some sort of think tank out there somewhere that can kind of come up with a better plan, you know, because a lot of people, I mean, face it too, during the pandemic were coming in sick because they couldn't lose the money. And if there was an, right. if there was an actual fair and balanced sick plan, you mm-hmm. just imagine the, the lack of the amount of spread that could have prevented. Cause we, we all know somebody yeah. who showed up to work that had it. So, yeah, and I think employers will tell you, yeah, but then people will abuse it. Um, But, you know, the way I push back on that is, well, what about these big tech companies where they get unlimited vacation and unlimited sick time? No one is assuming that they are going to abuse it. What's different? Why would you think that um, an engineer at Google wouldn't abuse it, but a grocery store worker would? Like, they won't abuse it if, like, let's... People want to work. People are driven by wanting to work. And, um, you know, so I think I I completely agree with you that people need more sick time and it needs to be accessible without strings attached. And employers need to trust that their workers are going to use it when they're sick, not just because they don't want to work. People want to work. Yeah. And, and you know, it's it's the human thing to do. You know, it, it, it's it's doing something good for the benefit of everybody. Try, like you said, look at how much money all these businesses have made the past two years. They can afford it, you know. They can afford it. I mean, and that, but they refuse to. And, that, and that's the thing when you, especially look at how much, because it's not completely over yet. And you, you look at like the inflation now. 
and look at how much oh, these, these people yeah. are making. They're not getting raises to help combat, you know, inflation. So now they've got mm-hmm. that extra burden on them and they've got no way out because, you know, the sick pay is terrible. You know, the, the, some mm-hmm. companies tell you you get only X amount of days, you know, they should at least have done something industry wide that if you test positive, that there should have been like an extra tier or, or a, a different type of sick pay to ensure mm-hmm. that they felt safe and staying home and not having to come to work. Just the PR alone would have done them good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we saw, I mean, and what we also saw was just so variable by state and municipality, you know, some States it was like all essential workers get an extra two weeks of sick leave and some states was like you're on your own um you know and so also yeah it's also just contributing to inequities when it's not standardized across the employer you know like walmart has stores all across the country but what they were doing in one state might be different than what they were doing in another state which makes no sense it should all be uniform which makes no sense and 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 you're right and and it is kind of you know, there's great benefits for like these high dollar people, but the people that, you know, had to be in everybody's face because they were quote unquote essential, you know, they should have gotten the same treatment. And, and you're mm-hmm. right. You know, those people, typically the people that work in the kind of industries we do, you're right. They want to work. They don't want to be out, but there are times that you, you wake up one day, you're like, I really, really don't feel like going to work. I, I'm really, really sick. And you do it anyway. Mm-hmm. Th- that, and call it for what it is. It should be a benefit, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and like anything else, people, the people are going to abuse anything. I mean, there's people out there that will do that, but you know, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't offer it. Right. Right. Now, have you seen any changes in like the the sick pay and stuff like that for like the EMT field? So there was some. So the EMTs they were previously, if they took more than ninety six hours, I think within a year period, they were basically put on probation, um, which meant that they didn't get the best routes and the best schedules, and you know it's like any minor infraction, they could lose their job. And so it sounds like they suspended that during the pandemic. Like they suspend, you could take more sick leave without getting put on the the warning list, basically. Um, So that's something I remember hearing about. Um, And I think they made it so, but but they were facing really just shortages of drivers. Um, So it was, and if, someone was sick, they would just not have people as many EMTs available. Um, so it, and so it has effects on the community and, you know, if you, it takes longer to get an ambulance. Um, but yeah, they did drop the, some of the limits on sick leave that you could take with before you get on probation. You know, going back to the Mariners, you know, you made the point being isolated on a vessel. Mm-hmm. And like you said, only so many have like internet communication. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I know a lot of what we go through, you know, the, the mental health aspect of it sucks for us dealing with customers, but I cannot imagine 
getting stuck on a boat. <laughs> I'm not allowed to come back to shore. The world right. seemingly falling apart. That had have to do a number on those folks. You can't hear from your family. You don't know. Um, yeah, it's I mean, it's a it's a job that requires a high level of mental fitness to even get your credential from the Coast Guard. And so I think that that was why I mean, so the folks I was working with in the federal government, I met the Department of Transportation. They, I mean, they were pretty surprised by the 20 percent of folks who have likely have depression, um, you know, because it's like this is a profession that you should be very mentally fit in order to enter. And we're seeing these fairly high rates. And there's concerns about if they get help for mental health, that they will lose their U.S. Coast Guard credential and not be able to sail. Um, you know, so yes, it's extremely, uh, yeah, it's the just kind of, the, uh, it's the same as people who work, you know, maybe in long haul trucking or on oil rigs. Um, or even, you know, similar to people who are deployed. I'm not trying to compare the two because I know folks who are deployed for the military. It's not just the isolation, but it's also what, you know, the, the work they're doing. Um, but yeah, that isolation. And then to learn that only about half of people have contact with their family. It's just, gosh, and, you know, you're supposed to get off the boat after a month and you're not allowed to. And so it's another month and it's another month with no end in sight. Just challenging. So especially with that one, how how does a study like that and the results that you're getting and the feedback affect you? I mean, that sounds like something that if you really got into that, that kind of stuff would keep you up at night. Um. Yeah, I mean, the. so I, having worked with a variety of occupations, you know, I've learned so much about work. Um, and, but, and what I always find is even with the Mariners, um, hearing all these things, we always do this series of job satisfaction questions, which is a scale. It's been around for a long time, but it's basically like, do you like your job? Do you like the people you work with? Do you think that the work you're doing is valued by society? And for the Mariners, I mean, over 95% of respondents are like, I love my job. I'm doing important work. I like who I work with, you know? And so I think, and some of it is like, I, as an outsider, I'm like, gosh, this sounds horrible. I'm stuck on this ship with all these people, with, with these people and I can't get off of it. And I'm like, no, these, these people love their job. Um, and so to me, it really kind of just drives me to like, these are people who love their job and are performing an important service <laughs> for all of us. Um, so then I owe it to them to try to make their job, the, the aspects of their job that they don't like to try to make it better for them. Um, you know, someone has, has to do that work and it is important work um, and they love doing it. So, and I'm sure if I were to tell them about my job and probably you all as well, you're like, your job sounds horrible. <laughs> so, you know, it's often, to, so yeah, I mean, hearing stories and some of the stories I hear from women working on construction sites, you know, it's very, uh, yeah, I have a six-year-old who's stomping around upstairs. I'm sorry. Oh, you're fine. Um, <laughs> if you hear that, um, 
you know, so hearing stories from women in construction who, you know, have had horrible things happen to them. Like, yes, it's all very, it's tough. It's tough to think that there are folks who are going to work every day and experiencing those things. But I guess I find peace and solace in the fact that, um, you know, these are folks who, who like their job and I have the skills um, to try to help improve the aspects that are not so great, or at least to determine what they are and raise awareness around them. Like I said, I, I cannot commend you enough for your work. And, and I find conversations like this absolutely fascinating, you know, because there's so many, you know, nuances to these different things. And at the end of the day, you know, whether it's a mariner, an EMT, an Uber driver or whatnot, we're all in the same boat. You know, we, we all have jobs. We all have, you know, things we need to take care of. And, you know, our work life is paramount, you know, to a lot of things. And one of the biggest things that it affects, as you know, is, is our health. And, mm -hmm. you know, and having said that, we're, we're just about at an hour and I've got a question here and I want to end it out on this because I think this is a great one. This is from J.B. Gatewood. It says, so I'm curious what steps retail workers could take to lobby employers for sick day reform. The problem isn't a lack of solutions. It's a mm -hmm. lack of compassion. Oh, gosh. You know, I think strength in numbers is very important. Um, and anytime you can have multiple voices um, demanding the same things, um, you know, I think often we look for change to come from the federal level. Um, and that's just not going to happen. <laughs> um, no matter who's elected president, no matter who's in the Senate, OSHA is not going to update their standards. Um, you know, but something that I've seen as being successful is municipalities often have a lot of power to go in and make changes um, without having to have a vote or, you know, and so city council members um, often they could, you know, so writing letters to the city council, I've seen so that one of the EMTs I worked with um, wrote letters to the city council about some changes um, in the workplace that she was not enthusiastic about. And, you know, she was able to have an audience with them and explain um, her feelings. And that's how we've also seen Uber drivers here in Seattle have gotten a lot of um, benefits. Like they get paid for the time in between rides. Um, they get paid for the time they spend cleaning their car because of work with the city council. So sometimes when it feels like OSHA doesn't care about me. They're never going to do anything. Federal government is gridlocked. Nothing's going to change. Sometimes the change might just have to come from a very smaller level, like the city that you live in or your county um, or even your state. Um, and I do think strength in numbers is important. Um, also, unfortunately, and I wish this wasn't the case, but painting things in economic terms instead of health terms. Um, you know, right. Compa compassion doesn't sell groceries, right? Um, you know, but if you can make an economic case for, you know, this many people because they've come to work sick, they've spread the disease to this many other workers. And so now all these workers have been out where if just the one worker had stayed out and was paid to do so, you would have saved, you know, so I wish that 
health was <laughs> enough of a, a driver, but sometimes economics is actually what speaks. And so coming up with that case, you know, and reaching out to unions that represent workers similar to you, if you're not unionized, um, they often, you know, have resources as they try to expand their their footprint as well. Great answer. Maybe not satisfying or helpful, but I, um, it's in, I, I feel, yeah. Well, I mean, you, you just, we all know it. It's wealth before health. Mm, and mm-hmm. and you, you're right. You have to turn it into a bottom line, you know, economic thing for them to even raise an eyebrow and listen. So, but. I mean, if you're feeling really brave, you could all walk out. Nobody shows up to work one day. I mean, that sends a very strong message, but I understand that the uh, fear of retaliation is also quite, quite strong. Yeah. And then that poor store manager is going to be there working by themselves. <laughs> yeah. That's got to get them to come with you. Yeah, exactly. Lock the door and go home. <laughs> so Marissa, thank you so much for being here. I, I really have yeah. been looking forward to this and I really enjoyed this. Um, what I will do is for everybody in the chat that if if you're interested in communicating with her about mental health and whatnot in in our business, DM me on Twitter or send me an email and then I will hit you up with her email address and you guys can take it from there. Um, It is uh, one of those deals where free info is always good, you know, (laughs) and, and, and every little bit helps and it helps the cause. So but yeah, but Mar- yeah. Marissa, thank you so much. I, I really do appreciate. What time is it there now? Uh, it's six o'clock, so er, early. <laughs> yeah, early. It's getting late for us. We're 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 sitting at nine p.m. So, um, you mm-hmm. you you have fun with your uh, six year old, and yes, um, yeah. I will be in touch. Um, keep me posted on like different stuff that you're doing. You know, oh, if you've got something like another study and, and like I said, we're branching out. It doesn't have to be retail. I've got some people, okay. you know, advertising coming up. I'm trying to get some film people. It, it really is, you know, the retail war zones, the name, but I, I really want to cover a whole lot more, you know, and, and mm-hmm. any kind of industry. So anything you come so up I with, I actually do a lot of work with the TV industry too. So I'll definitely DM you. Oh yes. DM me about that. Cause, cause I, I've got friends in the entertainment industry that I need to reach out to as well. So, um, that would be excellent. But, and the chat is, is thanking you immensely for being here. Mm-hmm. Um, JB Gatewood said, thanks for the great answer to the last question. So having said that guys, thank you once again for being the best community on Twitter. Um, thank you, Marissa, for taking the time to speak with us. Uh, I'll get some information to you um, and have some people shoot you some emails. I want you to have a very Great. wonderful rest of your day. Stay safe. And keep dodging it. Yes, you all as well. Thank you for having me. All right. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.